Before we start the show, we wanted to let you all know that we're going on a break for the next few weeks. Yay, breaks! October's actually <laughs> Will's hibernation month. <laughs> for real though, he's studying for his qualifying exam, which we all know looks a lot like hibernation. <laughs> <laughs> but not to worry, we've trained a neural network to learn his voice, so that's who you'll be hearing from in this episode. We can make him say anything we want. Alex and Milena are the greatest people I've ever met. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't even program that one. <laughs> Although we're going on break, we'll be staying busy. We're excited to be attending our first conference as a podcast in just a couple of weeks at DPS 52. Make sure to say hello if you're there. We also wanted to acknowledge and celebrate that it's almost ASB's birthday. We released our first episode nearly a year ago on November 1st. Should we sing happy birthday? To celebrate, I'm going to order an ice cream cake and eat it all myself. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, that sounds like the dream. It's amazing. They grow up so fast. Before we head off, though, we wanted to pass along a real treat, an episode filled to the brim with machine learning research from two of the experts themselves. We hope you learned something from hearing about their work. I know I did. Me too. Beep boop boop. <laughs> Shoot. Time to retrain. Every day. The graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a third-year PhD student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study supernovae and the galaxies they came from. I'm Melena Rice. I'm a fourth-year PhD student at Yale University, where I study planetary systems. And I'm Will Saunders. I'm a third-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study planetary atmospheres. You're listening to episode 24, The Stargazing Automata, part 4. This is, sadly, the last installment of our machine learning series, and today we're going to close out the conversation with some special guests who apply machine learning methods in their own research. But we've covered a lot of ground so far, so I think a recap is in order. Good idea. In part one, we covered neural networks, algorithms that have been wildly successful at matching observations, and that challenge our very definition of intelligence. Melina, where have you seen neural networks used since the first episode was aired? I feel like I've been seeing them everywhere. I mean, so I started using neural networks about when we aired that episode. And so I've actually been reading a bunch of textbooks about it and just learning a ton about it. And I guess that means that mostly I've been seeing it used in my research and that that's something that I think about every single day now. <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, in my research, in Will, this episode, it's everywhere. <laughs> it really is pretty <laughs> Part two focuses on random forests and transient classification. This was a spooky episode. We saw both a ghost and an assassin. I'm a little bit biased, but I think this was the best episode in the series. Maybe our best episode ever. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, in part three, we explored some unsupervised methods, where we learned about the thermal spectra of galaxy clusters, and that Will doesn't have a future in galaxy evolution because he really doesn't like green peas. No, I only like them when they're not in the pea pods, but when they're in the pods, the whole thing is delicious. Yeah, you might need both for galaxy evolution. We don't know how they form. <laughs> in the pod, outside of the pod. Will, what did you learn from episode three? I thought one of the coolest things was the principal component analysis, a way of sort of um, characterizing the 
different parameters in the clustering that an unsupervised algorithm does by collapsing a sort of an unsolvable multi-dimensional parameter space into something that we can actually comprehend. That was cool. It was so amazing that the authors also used principal component analysis as just one subset of many different methods that they used. Yes. I was pretty impressed at how many methods they managed to use in an individual paper. <laughs> this is a the theme of some of our interview topics as well for later. Um, and you'll hear that when you use machine learning, you almost never just use one algorithm. Right. Yeah, let's dive right into that. You've all heard a lot from us over the past few episodes, so it's time to pass the mic. Let's hear from a few other astronomers making use of these methods we've described, starting with a deep dive into the star formation history of satellite galaxies. Can you start off by introducing yourself with your name, your institution, and your preferred pronouns? So my name is Devontae Baxter. I go by Tay Baxter. I'm a fourth year from the University of California, Irvine, and my pronouns are he, him, his. Could you start us off by talking about some of the motivations for your research and what you work on? All right, so my research involves studying satellite galaxies, particularly understanding the suppression of star, star formation in these systems. What's interesting is that in the last seven to 10 giga years, the population of passive galaxies has increased by a factor of two, meaning that prior there were some way more star forming galaxies and then something happened caused these galaxies to lose their star formation or star formation to go down. And in particular, when you look at Z of zero, if you look at the population of passive systems, majority of these systems are satellites as opposed to central galaxies. We should just maybe define a couple terms here, right? So okay, yeah. passive, that means not star forming, right? That is correct. So these are galaxies that have very little star formation going on. And if you look at the field, you see that most of the field galaxies, these isolated systems, are star forming. So this points out there's some kind of environmental mechanism responsible for suppressing star formation in these passive satellites. Yet when we try to model satellite quenching using n-body simulations, we essentially over-quench the satellite system. So we don't quite have the physics down, understanding what processes are responsible for quenching satellite galaxies. And this is kind of where my research comes in. I'm looking at satellite galaxies and group and cluster environments. They're within hosts that have halo masses between 10 to the 13 or 10 to the 14 or higher. So what I'm really interested in is bridging the gap between what we can observe and what we can't. This is where machine learning comes in. We're limited with the most recent spectroscopic surveys, galaxy surveys, in that they don't have the depth, uh, they don't have the area or completeness to really probe down to the lower stellar masses for these satellites. So right now we're kind of limited to like stellar mass greater than 10 to the 10 when we're looking at satellite systems. But we have tons of photometry, we have tons of images, right? All these galaxies that have no spectra and spectra is really expensive. So my motivation is to take these photometric samples, use the scaling relations that we know exist between photometry and spectroscopic properties we know that when you look at the specific star formation rate of a galaxy, it correlates well with its color, but it's not perfect. There's issues that arise, there's reddening, there's redshift issues. So if you don't have the spectra, you can't you know, definitively say this galaxy star forming, this galaxy is quenched. I'm curious how distant these galaxies are that you're looking at. My sample is kind of truncated at Z of 
0.1. I don't go further than that just okay. because if I go too far, you have to deal with more issues that arise mm -hmm. higher redshift galaxies. There's canonical cuts in this specific star formation rate stellar mass space. Uh, usually, once you have a spectrum of a galaxy, you have some derived property, such as specific star formation rate. They make a cut at 10 to the negative 11 for a specific star formation rate to say, okay, anything above this is uh, star forming, anything below it is quenched. And when you say quenched, that means it has gone from star forming to passive, correct? That, that is correct. So quenched galaxies are galaxies who, that are no longer forming stars. So you said to first order, you can distinguish these types of galaxies by color. Ideally, you'd want spectroscopy because what would spectroscopy give you that photometry wouldn't? With spectra, you can get emission lines, which are really important to really determine if something is forming stars. We don't have that information if you just have just pure fluxes. Got it. So you said you can instead use machine learning with these scaling relations between photometry and spectroscopy to learn more about which ones are passive and which ones are active. Precisely. So by training on a sample that has both spectroscopic properties and um, photometric properties, we can relate the two and let the machine learning kind of learn the relationship between the two and then apply that to just a purely photometric sample. And the properties that we use um, are colors. So we use the colors of the galaxies. And then for the spectroscopic sample, we know if it's quenched or star forming. So it sounds like this is a supervised learning algorithm, but could you tell us a little bit more about what the model actually is that tells you, like, given these inputs, we think that this is the output for the test set? Yeah, so this is indeed a supervised learning um, machine learning algorithm. Particularly, I'm using a neural network classifier. Super basic, uh, you have some input, and then I have like a, I'm using only one hitting layer, and then you have some output. So essentially what it does is you feed it the features, which in this case are the variables that I'm using, which are colors. It does some linear algebra operations and kind of spits out its best test, but it kind of, it's a cyclic process, essentially. Um, it keeps kind of reiterating until it kind of converges on the specific weights that it thinks it should apply to each kind of node in this neural network. And then, yeah, you use that completed model and apply it to the photometric data set. I'm curious, how long does it take to train the model? Since it's only around like 300,000 galaxies and I'm only using one hidden layer, it's relatively quick. I can run it in probably like a minute. Wow. wow, that's actually yeah. really fast. That's way faster than I expected. <laughs> and does it perform very well with one hidden layer? I guess I'm curious, like, how you decided to use one versus two. Like, you just found that the simpler model worked and decided you didn't need more complexity? Exactly. So I tried different arrangements of what they call hyperparameters. So mm -hmm. the number of hidden layers would be a hyperparameter. And I found that I get equivalent uh, metrics, for example, looking at the loss or the uh, accuracy of the model, it doesn't vary much if you add more layers. So I figured by adding more layers, I might be introducing some kind of overfitting. There's no need to overcomplicate it. And what kind of accuracy are you able to get with this model? So when I apply the model to the test set or even validation set, it's around 93%. It varies between by maybe a percent or two if it's star forming or quench, but it tends to do better for the star forming galaxies. 
That's also pretty incredible to me that if we really don't even have like a baseline metric for how well people do it, discriminating between these two classes because it's so, uh, there's so many factors in play, then to get a neural network with one single hidden layer to get 93% accuracy at distinguishing the two is incredible. Yeah, it is really remarkable. I didn't expect to go down this route when I came to graduate school. I didn't think that, oh, I'm gonna go into machine learning. But I came across this project. Um, my advisor, Michael, Michael Cooper, kind of pitched it to me. I was like, yeah, this sounds interesting. Let's try it out. And yeah, it's been pretty successful so far. What was the learning curve like for, for getting you up to speed on these machine learning methods and even just to code it up? Yeah, so again, I had no background with machine learning prior to coming to grad school. And essentially, um, he gave me this book, Statistics, Data Mining, Machine Learning, and Astronomy. And it's a pretty great resource for anyone that has some kind of coding background, Python specifically, um, to get into machine learning. On top of that, there's tons of other resources online, PsychicLearn, uh, you can look at TensorFlow. So the, the learning curve was probably around, I don't know, half a year to really understand um, what's going on behind the scenes. Um, but in, on, in addition to like reading the book and looking at documentation, um, UC Irvine offers machine learning for physicists class. So um, that was super helpful. There's this physicist here, David Kirby, who does research using machine learning, specifically for LSST, the Vera Rubin Observatory. They're gonna have tons of photometric data and they're gonna use machine learning to classify galaxies or stars. Um, you're not gonna have a human kind of going through saying, okay, this looks like a star, this looks like a galaxy. There's just way too much data. So yeah, he used his expertise to help graduate students apply machine learning in their research. You said that the machine learning method, the neural net, performed very well in distinguishing between passive and active galaxies, but you also said that there may be some environmental factors that quench the galaxies, right? That takes them from active to passive. I was wondering if your machine learning methods can shed any light on exactly what those environmental factors might be, or is the data sets of passive and active galaxies just kind of like a first step and now you can go investigate kind of what similarities those active galaxies have and what the passive ones have. Exactly. So classification, classifying these galaxies as passive or star forming is the first step to a much bigger um, picture. The bigger picture is understanding star formation, suppression, and group and cluster environments. So now that we have this huge photometric data set that has galaxies classified as star forming or quench, we can go into group catalogs we can find where known groups or clusters lie, and then we can use some kind of background subtraction technique to say, okay, which of these galaxies statistically are associated with this host? And then you can get an idea of starlight quench fraction as a function of stellar mass. There's other ways that you can derive stellar mass from galaxies that only have photometry. So we use that and then we can basically compare what has been observed spectroscopically, this satellite quench fraction as a function of stellar mass to what we get from applying the machine learning to photometric set and doing some background subtraction. And I've done this and I found that I recover the spectroscopic results using my machine learning methods, which is great. And I also go to lower stellar masses than what could be done using spectroscopy. So these spectroscopic surveys don't go deep enough. They don't have a large enough area 
their completeness to kind of go past 10 to the 10, 10 to the 10.5 in stellar mass. I can go down two and a half or two orders of magnitude lower than what current spectroscopic surveys can do. So I'm kind of probing this new region that hasn't been observed spectroscopically. And this allows us to tease out what's going on physically, what physical processes could create these quench fractions. And the next step from there is understanding, okay, so once I go from a filled galaxy to a satellite galaxy, how long does it take them to go from star forming to passive? This is kind of the most important question because there's tons of different quenching mechanisms. They all work on different timescales. So if you can understand the time scale in which a galaxy goes from star forming to quench, you can say, okay, this must be this process or this process. And I'm also doing that using uh, hydrodynamic simulations. So by mapping these satellite galaxies to their analogs and simulations, I'm able to determine a quenching time scale for these galaxies. And this is a project that's currently going ongoing. Classification is kind of like the first step into a much bigger picture. Can you uh, name a couple of these physical processes that would lead a galaxy to be quenched? There's two categories. Some people call this internal or mass quenching. This um, arises when a galaxy pretty much quenches itself from within. So you have active galactic nuclei feedback or star formation feedback that completely kind of wipes out the cold gas reserves for these galaxies, ionizes the gas such that it can no longer uh, be used to form stars. So this typically can, happens out the, regardless of environment. And it's mostly prevalent for high mass galaxies. Low mass galaxies don't typically quench that way. They are mostly quenched based off observations by environment. Like I said before, most observations of um, galaxies in the field, these low mass galaxies, they're star forming. So the, the next picture is um, environmental processes that quench galaxies. And there's a handful of them. Um, one of them is known as ram pressure stripping. Essentially, you can imagine you have this host galaxy with this hot halo. You bring in a satellite, it's moving through this hot gas. This gas gets stripped as it moves through this hot host halo. And for that reason, the galaxy no longer has enough cold gas reserves to continue star forming. There's some other processes that are env environmental. You have things such as strangulation. You have interactions between satellites in these dense environments. Who names these things? <laughs> so these, these names were given to these processes in like the 80s and 90s. So I don't know, times have changed. <laughs> <laughs> I would. <laughs> Might be even worse than the magnitude system. <laughs> um, but ramp pressure stripping is kind of one of the biggest ones. All the other ones in general are just processes that can happen when you are a galaxy in a dense environment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're looking at specifically satellite galaxies, right, which are the relatively small ones. So does that mean you're trying to differentiate between specifically environmental processes then? Exactly. Using the photometric sample with the known uh, spectroscopic groups and clusters. I can just use projected distances to see how far away a known satellite galaxy or potential satellite galaxy is from a central. And mm -hmm. typically they use around, depending on, it depends on the mass of the central, but it can be like around 400 kiloparsecs for like low mass groups going up to like 500 kiloparsecs for, that could be like the known as the virial region, virial radius for these systems. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I love the idea of connecting the neural network classifier to cosmological simulations. A lot of the times we hear that neural networks, machine learning are these black boxes, right? And so lots of people are trying to find ways to figure out exactly what the neural net is classifying on, what it's using to learn, like what different samples represent. And so, yeah, if you can match those samples at the end of a cosmology simulation and then say, I know exactly the physics that I've added to the cosmology simulation to get me to that point, then that's kind of like opening up exactly what got you from, from one spot like maybe star forming to passive or star forming to a different final state. Yeah, you can think of it as filling in the gaps. Um, at the end of the day, neural networks, machine learning models are black boxes. I don't know exactly what's going on. I don't know how it determines this is quenched, this is star forming. Um, it's always best if you're using supervised machine learning to kind of come in with a physically motivated reason for using your features. Again, I decided to use colors because there are these scaling relations between colors and or, right, there are relationships between colors and uh, if a galaxy is star forming or not. But yes, at the end of the day, machine learning algorithms are black boxes. And So you were talking about tuning hyperparameters. Mm -hmm. Are you just like digging around in the dark for what the results might look like? Or do you kind of have a motivated way for exploring your parameter space? Yeah, that's one thing that you kind of come in, you have to have some assumptions and just kind of build up from there. There's tons of different ways to evaluate the effectiveness of your hyperparameters, which ones are the best. You can split your data set into partitions, k minus one number of partitions, I believe, and feed it different hyperparameters um, within some given range. So for the neural network, some of the most important hyperparameters would be the number of hidden layers you can add essentially how many observations are fed into the model at a time, even what are known as these activation functions. Since I'm using a binary process, there are like optimized activation functions for this process. So that's one of the hyperparameters I don't really need to mess with a lot. But I, I wouldn't say there's any physically motivated um, hyperparameters. You just kind of have to throw what you think possibly work at an algorithm and just kind of let it provide you with the hyperparameters that give you the best results. It's cool that you're approaching this problem from so many different angles. It seems like a very comprehensive understanding that you're going to get from, uh, from all these different projects. Yeah, looking forward to finishing this project up and seeing how I can apply what I've developed to other data sets. Do you have any advice for anyone else who might be thinking about using machine learning or neural nets in their own research or wondering how to get started, wondering what the learning curve might be? If you're interested in machine learning, um, there's a wealth of information out there, especially if you have some kind of coding background to be able to implement this in your research. Uh, really all it takes is a desire to learn and explore. The learning curve, it, there it's definitely a learning curve, so be prepared for that, but depending on your familiarity with some of these topics, it shouldn't be too difficult for you. I'm sure that anyone that's willing to put in the time and effort to learn these will pick them up. Again, some resources or softwares that I would shout out, Psychic Learn, great documentation, great beginner guide for implementing um, machine learning models. I've used a variety of models there before deciding to use this neural network classifier. TensorFlow and Keras are also well-documented there's tons of uh, articles online that kind of go into great detail on 
some do's and don'ts when it comes to machine learning. Awesome. Great. Well, Great. thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Talking to Teo was such an interesting opportunity to learn about some of the great applications of this type of research in different fields completely separate from my own, because I mentioned that I've been using neural networks, but this is such a different context. It's really cool seeing all the different ways that you can use the same mechanisms. And I really loved the sentiment that he ended with that was, you know, this is something that really anyone can try, you know, if you just want to check it out for yourself, there's really a lot of awesome documentation to get started and a lot of really great code that already exists that you can start building upon. Yeah, absolutely. I was uh, taken by that as well, that um, a lot of people who use machine learning, especially early career people, really encourage others to explore it and try it out, that you can just download it and run some samples. And once you kind of get your feet wet, you, you're much more comfortable diving into your own research um, and applying the methods. It makes me a little nervous, and this is something that maybe we shouldn't get into in full depth here, that you could um, find a result that you like and then not maybe try everything possible to get other results or that you could um, you could risk pigeonholing your, your methods by finding one that may work for one type of data but doesn't work for the next. Um, so I think it's always smart to be well-versed in all the different possibilities before you settle on one. So this is what I loved about Tay's specific research projects is that he's complementing the neural network results with cosmological simulations to try and back up the results that he derives with physically motivated results from the cosmology. I thought that was so cool and it's something I hadn't heard before, but it seems like one of those ways to, I guess, kind of open up the black box of machine learning and actually figure out if you get a certain result, why are you getting that and does it make physical sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, nice job, guys, on that interview. Yeah, thank you. And thank you again, Tay, for your time and for the awesome interview. We're going to hear from another astronomer in a bit. But first, it's time for our bi-weekly space sound of the fortnight for machine learning, astrophysics, and beyond. This one, y'all can look for. You won't be guessing because oh. uh, there's information on the screen that I think is, is helpful, but it's super interesting anyway, so I think y'all should just see it and then we can discuss it. Okay. Ready to rock image recognition with me. Take a picture and they'll tell you what I see. <laughs> Snap a photo. <laughs> Here, here, here we go. I think there is what we've got. Could be house effluent, but maybe not. Okay, what else? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's banana family on my screen. I think Saga Banana is what it seems. Turn it up. Oh, alright. Is that face I see? Looks like I wear to me. Whoa. Okay, I am shutting down. That was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how easy it was to actually hear those rhymes. They're a lot easier when you see them on the screen. But essentially, that was Google Cloud Vision. So it's a series of machine learning models that's used for image recognition. And a team at Google created a fun little code called Georgios Cam, where you can use your camera to take pictures of things around you. Google Vision will predict what it is. And then Georgios Cam will incorporate what it is into a line in a song. 
And those objects were? I had a house plant, a banana, and then a picture of myself that I was taking with Giorgio's cam as the song was going on. It was actually a family of bananas, Alex. <laughs> banana family. Apparently it's a Saba banana. <laughs> and and it, I don't know if you heard it, but when it took a picture of myself, the two things it identified, hair and <laughs> eyewear, right? Yeah. yeah. I guess Which, those are very distinctive things. My two principal components, yeah. I guess. <laughs> That's great. I like how they made it like rhyme and a song and a whole thing. I mean, it's it's very clever. Yeah, some good background music too. So it turns out the code that is running on the back end is completely open source. You can go to the GitHub repo and download it and run it yourself and train it on whatever songs you want to train it to and make your own songs with machine learning. That's fun. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And we will, of course, link to that so that you can use the web app to, to play around and see what in your house google cloud will recognize thanks for bringing that alex that was fun yeah thanks that was not what i expected but i not loved it <laughs> <laughs> you got it now let's move on to another interview this one from a scientist using unsupervised learning to characterize exoplanets okay so my name is anna uh, i am a, an undergraduate student in physics in the university of porto in portugal what is your primary area of research right now um, so last semester I did a, a study to um, classify exoplanets with the use of machine learning. Um, we tried to find uh, algorithms that aided that classification. Uh, right now I'm also studying a bit of uh, detection methods. So pretty much that's my focus right now. Exoplanets. Yes, <laughs> exoplanets. It's an exciting field. Uh, how would you say you got started in exoplanet research? Okay, so um, last semester uh, actually in the program of my um, of my major. We can take this optional course uh, that is actually a research project in astrophysics. And I saw that it was a really nice experience, uh, opportunity of experience, um, and I chose it. And then I was sent a list of, um, of topics that we could choose from. And there, the, the topic was there, like machine learning uh, for exoplanets. Uh, uh, help the classification of exoplanets with machine learning. And I, I, I already liked um, the idea of studying exoplanets. Um, I really like astrophysics. I'm minoring in astrophysics. Um, so I thought it was a really good experience, opportunity. So that's why I chose it. That's really great that your university helps undergrads identify research projects and professors to work with. In, in my undergrad, it was, it was much harder than that. You had to be much more proactive, which is, you know, a barrier to entry for the first time to do research. But that, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, I think it's a really nice opportunity that we, we can choose from. Uh, actually, not many people choose it. I'm not really sure why uh, many people probably think they still have to learn a lot before doing research or they're not comfortable. But uh, I thought it was a really good opportunity. So... As soon as I saw the topic there to choose from, I, I immediately chose it. Um, I also had a curiosity for machine learning, and I just thought it was a good, a really good thing. And that's how I got started, pretty much. Yeah, let's talk about machine learning. Did you learn about it for this project, or had you already known some of the ways that it works? Uh, I had heard about it, but I had no idea what it actually did. I, I knew mm -hmm. it was a really good way of learning about... <laughs> of learning about things, of learning about your data, of learning new things. Right. Um, I, I learned more about it during the project. Um, 
I didn't know what algorithms we were going to use. Actually, we also didn't on the beginning of this. So it was more of an exploratory thing <laughs> than anything else. What do you feel like the learning curve was for some of these methods? I mean, were you able to oh. run them out of the box or, or did it take oh. a <laughs> Um, we use two methods for this. We use k-means and we also use umap. Um, for k-means, it wasn't that difficult to implement. It wasn't because uh, the data that we used was kind of simple. We, we only used uh, mass and period values, orbital period values. And uh, the three groups, there are three groups that we found, they were really distinct from one another. So it wasn't that difficult to implement. Um, if you know some coding, I used Python a little bit, by the way. If you know some coding, um, if you have a few, uh, just a few, ex uh, some experience, you'll be able to implement it. Uh, with we, with UMAP, it was a bit different, the more different, uh, because it required a lot of exploration. <laughs> and so it wasn't as easy, uh, but, but yeah, eventually I got it. <laughs> I mean, it's not... Um, there are still things to explore. I don't know to, to reach a level where you say, yeah, this is a definite answer. I don't think if you do uh, any unsupervised learning, you reach a level where you're completely confident that your algorithm is doing something perfectly. <laughs> You'll never reach That's that level, point. I think. But there is a certain level where you say, yeah, this is probably okay. <laughs> it's okay to stop for now. <laughs> I think that's true about all research. It's like you get to a point where you say, I accept these results, it seems reasonable, and it's not perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell us how k-means clustering works? Okay, so pretty much k-means clustering um, is a tool to help uh, cluster the data into k groups. Um, first, you need to have the number you want to, to try to, to cluster the groups in. Um, mm -hmm. It pretty much assigns centers and then it calculates the, the, the average value of each point and allocates, reallocates the centers based on those average values. So it's pretty much always calculating new average values until the difference between the average value uh, and the center of that cluster is minimized. So okay. if that center, the position of the center doesn't change much, it will converge and it will lead to the cluster. In our last episode, we talked about principal component analysis. Are you familiar with that? I am somewhat familiar. I also uh, listened to your episode, and I Great. think it's really well uh, explained. How similar is PCA to k-means clustering? It's, it doesn't have the same uh, objective in mind, because okay. k-means simply clusters the points that you already have. It doesn't process the data. It pretty much sees, okay, uh, on this plot, you have three or four clusters it pretty much aims to capture the clusters that already exist okay in pca you kind of change how the data looks by capturing the most important features k-means doesn't change the data it just labels them in a way instead of changing it so there's no dimensionality reduction within k-means no it doesn't it doesn't do that Got it. so k-means could be used after you implement dimensionality reduction for example so you're sure of what your groups are and there are no doubts because even sometimes even with the dimensionality reduction it's not perfectly clear uh where the groups are distinct maybe they're really close or it's not too obvious and you, you can use a k-means to get that separation obvious for example and the second method you used you said umap um, yes. what does that stand for 
uniform manifold uh, approximation in production. I think it's that. I've used UMAP, <laughs> but I definitely wouldn't <laughs> say the acronym. Yeah, UMAP is a really complex mathematical mathematically. Uh, I am in no means qualified to talk about the mathematical foundation of it, but it's it's really it's really it's a really nice tool because it captures not only the global structure but the local structure within each group. Whereas PCA doesn't capture the local structure, I think. I think it only captures the global structure. So if you're interested in how similar points within a certain cluster are, you cannot use PCA. But in my case, we wanted to capture both. We wanted to capture both local and global structures, so that's why we chose UMAP. So when you say global structures, you mean like the differences between the groups. Like this group of exoplanets has those properties and this other group has those properties. And when you say local, you mean like within all the exoplanets that are hot Jupiters, they have some variations, something like that? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, that makes sense. And UMAP helps you do both simultaneously. Yeah, precisely. That's cool. You have to choose for k-means, at least the number of clusters yeah. that you think the group has, right? So that's at least some yeah. type of supervision, at least within this unsupervised method. How did you choose yeah. the number of clusters? Yeah, so it, like so, I, uh, like I was saying beforehand, I I used it. We used it on a on a plot that it had very distinct groups. It, we could look at it and say, mm, probably this has two or three uh, groups. So we tried with those, but there are actually some validation methods that you can use that can help you choose which is the correct or the most correct number, uh, the more correct number of k. There are two more known, uh, more used. Uh, methods which are the silhouette coefficient method and the elbow method. The elbow method uses uh, distances b uh, inside the clusters. Okay. Uh, and the silhouette coefficient method uses distances inside, but also also uses a measure of, similar, of similarity between each group. So there are methods in which you can determine what is the most correct number of, of clusters. It's not really like uh, randomly choosing a number. Absolutely. So going back to uh, how you applied these methods, you said you had um, orbital period and mass, was it? Yes. For the k-means, we use orbital period and mass. Actually, the, the algorithm of those, because sometimes k-means need some pre-processing. Okay. We needed to use the logarithm. We were able to identify three groups with the k-means algorithm. We were able to identify hot Jupiters long-period Jupiters, and non-giant planets. They are very visibly distinct from one another, only using those two parameters. And that was from k-means clustering? Yeah, yeah. And that was kind of what you were hoping for? Yeah, well, just by looking at the plot, we were like, yeah, this this probably will help happen, but let's see what it happens. Well, that's good. <laughs> yeah. And then we had the idea of explore further, so we tried doing another k-means inside the non-giant group. Okay trying to find some other uh, patterns, but we didn't find anything. <laughs> so that's when we started to look for other algorithms and dimensionality reduction. When you don't find subgroups, what does that look like? Does it look like all one giant blob on a plot or is it kind of like things that are hard to distinguish? It, it, it looks like it's really meaningless. Um, okay. It starts to, to group points together kind of randomly or, yeah, it's pretty much that. And you look at it and it doesn't mean anything. When you color the groups, different colors, it doesn't look like anything. Okay. And then we had the idea of adding other parameters. So we can simply implement k-means 
a missing dimensional thing. We need to reduce the dimensionality. So we started looking for which algorithm was uh, the best for our approach, and we chose UMAP for the reasons that I stated. And that was able to more successfully represent those higher dimensional cases? Yeah. Using the UMAP, we were actually able to find five different groups. We used um, six different parameters. We used both stellar and planetary parameters. Okay. We used the planetary mass, the planetary radius, and the orbital period, the stellar mass, the stellar temperature, stellar radius, and then we also used metallicity. But metallicity didn't work out quite as you expected. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I can explain that if you if you want me to. Sure. Um, uh, pretty much when we first used it, um, with the six initial parameters, we were able to identify five different groups. But the good thing about UMAP is that the distance in the plot really has meaning because both local and global structure is preserved. Right. So right. the closer the points are together, the more similar they are to each other. Right. So for example, you having the rocky planets really far away from hot Jupiters means that they have nothing to do with each other. And having the long period giants next to hot Jupiters, it says that, yeah, they, they are more similar than rocky planets. And when we did that with uh, the six parameters, we had five groups that were coherent. They were uh, well separated and more or less well defined as well. Mm -hmm. And then when we added the metallicity, um, the groups that were not giant, they lost its structure. Uh, so we saw that this probably means that there is some form of correlation that we're missing. And then when you think about it and when you look at uh, um, at some research papers, you see that there is a correlation between high metallicity stars and giant planets. So our work also looked in that direction. And that was the conclusion that we took from that. Very cool. One of the things we've talked about in our podcast about dimensionality reduction is that sometimes with nonlinear dimensionality reduction, it can be really hard to distinguish physically meaningful differences that distinguish groups from yeah stochasticity of that particular method. Mm. So yeah. I'm wondering if you found five groups in the UMAP, what's a way that you helped validate that the five groups that you found actually represented physical differences between those systems? We actually tried coloring the, the groups according to the planetary parameters that we found, like in research papers, like what are the, the ranges that we expected for, for mass, for radius, for those particular groups. And we colored them and it seemed to be coherent the colors corresponded to the clusters that were found in UMAP. Yes, yes, mostly yes. Anna, you alluded a little bit to next steps for this research, but I'm wondering if you had, say, an entire year <laughs> just do this research project starting from here, oh. where, where would you go? My biggest obstacle for this work was how updated the database was. I would probably spend some time trying to be sure that the data I'm using is the best data that I have access to. Mm -hmm. On the beginning, we actually found a really a really distinct group from all of them using UMAP that looked like very, very dense planets. And we were like, what is happening? Because we were not expecting to find this. And we actually found that those planets had really outdated mass values in that database that we were using. So wow. I had to, we, ha we had to hand update them about 50 planets or so. But we ha had to find them and to correct the values. So yeah, first of all, I would be sure that the data that I'm using is the most outdated that I have access to. Yes. You touched on something very, very interesting to me just now, which is, so we talked a lot about how the results of your algorithm are highly dependent upon 
how clean your data is that you put in, right? If you put yes. in highly biased data, you're going to get highly biased results. But we haven't actually talked much about the use of these dimensionality reduction methods or other unsupervised clustering to find those biases and to go back and iterate and correct for them in your data set. Yeah, actually, yeah, we were able to identify a, a lot of points that were not uh, updated. So yeah, I think that is a really good, it's a good, really good way of finding errors or incorrectness inside the data. That's really exciting. Well, for me, it was a bit frustrating to notice that the group that I found that was so curious, it was, it meant nothing, <laughs> but, but yeah, but now I know that, yeah, this is actually a good thing because I know that what I'm doing at least is somewhat correct. And Anna, you presented this work at the uh, EuroPlanet Science Congress conference, which has just wrapped up. Um, and that's how I came in, in contact with you via um, that conference, which was fun for me because I would not have been able to travel to Europe to attend the conference in person. So it was actually a bonus that it was virtual. But how have you enjoyed the, the virtual experience? Did it work for you? Um, I thought it was really interesting. It, it's a, a good opportunity to see many uh, lectures at the same time, many presentations. Um, Absolutely. Because if you do them in person, you would have to choose. Sometimes there are three or four that you really want to see, but you can't. And having this opportunity means that you can watch them later. <laughs> One of the sessions introduced me to the seminar. It was really, really interesting. They were actually able to present a paper that they tried modeling. Uh, I think it was the magnetosphere of Venus, if I'm not mistaken, or Mercury, oh. using machine learning. It would probably be Venus. Yeah, yeah, I think it was. Uh, it was really interesting using neural networks to do that. I Very it was cool. really interesting application. This is your first professional conference? Yes. <laughs> it was also my first poster presentation. And since it was an online one, it's neither a poster nor a presentation. <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, it would be hard to imagine, hard to know who's visiting my poster. I mean, I haven't had That's a true. virtual poster presentation, but if I don't see people interacting with it physically, then it's hard to know if anybody's looking at it. Yeah, that's true. I have no idea if everyone actually saw it. I had no idea if it captured anyone's interest until you contacted me. <laughs> I didn't get any comments, I think, until now. But now our entire listenership is going to know about <laughs> the details of your work. So I think that's pretty good success. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> A lot of firsts with this research project. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm wondering, how did this project influence maybe your career path, where you think you want to go after this? Are well, you uh, or no? Yeah, I'm completely motivated to keep doing research. Um, I immediately signed up for another research project that I am in currently right now. Um, it still has to do with, exo with exoplanets, but we are more focusing on detection methods and how to improve them <laughs> uh, computationally. Um, but yeah, I think this just makes me more excited to, to do research in the future and to attend more conference and, and talk more about research. <laughs> there will probably be listeners out there who are listening, who think machine learning is cool, who think exoplanets are really cool, but don't yeah. really know where to start. What advice, what tips would you give them? Well, if you have the opportunity to do research in your university, if it's an, op if it's an option like it was for me, just take it. Yes. Just absolutely. do it. Like <laughs> if you have no idea what you want to do, or if you think you don't know enough, just do it anyway, because I, I wasn't sure what I was going to, to be able to do. I just picked it anyway. I just went and tried my best and 
just take every opportunity that you have and do your best. And if you don't have any opportunity for now, just try your best to learn. Keep updated regarding what methods are being used right now. So look for the research that's being done. Talk to people that are older than you, to your colleagues, and be aware of what research is being done in your at your local university. So that those would be probably my tips. <laughs> Anna, thank you so much for coming on Astra Soundbites. It was a real pleasure getting to speak with you. Congratulations on completing a very successful project as an undergrad. It's impressive work, and we wish you the best of luck in your next steps in the research. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for having me. We will link to one of the images in Anna's EPSC poster that shows the cool coloration of different exoplanet groups from her unsupervised learning algorithms. Yeah, I'm pretty bummed out that I couldn't make it to this interview. It's such an interesting project, and it's really in line with a lot of my research interests. So thank you, Anna, for your interview with us. And it was really nice that Anna is an undergrad because we haven't had that perspective on the show yet. So I really appreciate hearing from someone, especially someone who's distinguished as an undergrad in in research experience Mm -hmm. um, on on her perspective and her future endeavors. Yeah, the project's really cool because, you know, we refer to planets or exoplanets specifically in these particular subgroups like sub-Neptunes and super-Earths and hot Jupiters, but... It's not always clear just how physically motivated the boundaries are between those different groups. And so it's pretty cool seeing her actually come up with these more defined ways to actually state what those boundaries should be. Absolutely. Yeah. And even when she was talking about choosing the number of clusters in her k-means clustering, which you think of as just something that you impose on the algorithm, she was talking about physical ways that you can learn from your data, what makes sense as the number of clusters that naturally fall out. So I thought it was very cool how Uh, There was a lot of interplay between learning from the data and imposing your own uh, prior information to get real insights out of it. Absolutely. With that, we'll conclude episode 24 of ASB, The Stargazing Automata, part four, and the last episode in our series on machine learning methods and astrophysics. Check out the show notes for more information about each of our speakers and the link to today's space sound. How are you using machine learning in your research? Did you learn something new from the series? Please reach out to us at astrosoundbites at gmail.com and let us know your thoughts. Thanks for listening. And as always, don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a third year PhD student at the University of Illinois at Urbana Champaign. <laughs> 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 I like the ones when you start off.